Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Howard Yu is Professor of Strategy and Innovation at IMD, as well as the Director of the Advanced Management Program there. In 2015, Professor Yu was selected by Poets and Quants as one of the world's best 40, under 40, business school professors. In 2017, he was shortlisted for the Thinker's 50 Innovation Award, and then in 2018, he appeared on the Thinker's 50 radar list of the 30 management thinkers, most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. He's written articles in many publications, including the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Fortune, Forbes, MIT Sloan Management Review, and the Financial Times. He's the author of the book that we'll be discussing here today. It's entitled Leap. How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied, and it's published by Public Affairs. Howard, so thrilled to have you here in New York and sitting in front of our microphone. Thank you very much. In the book, you review some company histories to demonstrate how organizations in the past have taken the leap to reinvent themselves. Why are some companies just better able to innovate and advance? Is it leadership, luck? Is it sort of a cosmic or a karma thing? What do you attribute their success to? If you look across different industry, and when I talk to executives these days, one of the biggest complaints that they talk about is their product or services getting copied. And indeed, we are living in an age of accelerated change. And no matter whether this is good design or this is good product features, it's very easy for low-cost competition to come in and provide exactly the same thing, even if it's not exactly the same format at a lower cost. And that is the biggest threat for most of the established company. So I live in Switzerland, and I'm looking across in a little town called Basel. Along River Rhines, there are lots of pharmaceutical companies, which they have been on that particular location for hundreds of years. We are talking about two centuries. So one big question in my mind is, how come in automotive, in personal computing, in mobile phone, in wind turbine and solar panel... There are always these latecomers coming in and encroach established and render historical industry clusters into Rust Belt region. But at Basel, along River Rhine, Novartis, Roche, they have been there for hundreds of years and they continue to thrive and prosper in that location. And in many ways, what I found out is these established companies over the years, over the long history, they don't just do what they are very good at but they actually leap across knowledge discipline. And we can talk more around that and how sure. they achieve those leap. But eventually, is they move from organic chemistry into other domain or field mm-hmm. of knowledge over the course of the long horizon. Mm-hmm. As a result, copycats find it rather hard mm-hmm. to catch up. They just can't, is it that they can't just anticipate those moves? It's, they're very reactive. Right. So let's go into the deep history in many ways. I'll sure. just take two minutes to quickly summarize. But, you know, once upon in time, the predecessors, Sieberg Eige, as well as Sandoz of Novartis, when they were settling down in River Rhine, they were chemical dye maker. So these chemists discover the medicinal benefit of these chemical dyes. And so the first blockbuster in the world is called antipyrin. It's the fever-reducing drugs. It was so good. It was selling so well across the Atlantic. New York Times in 1905 basically were only worried that the American couldn't buy enough import from the Swiss. Now, you might remember in high school, 
Alexander Fleming discover antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, all these pharmaceutical companies moving away from organic chemistry Mm -hmm. into microbiology, the study of microbes. So all these pharmaceutical companies basically surge ahead and sending their researchers to do field work just to identify the next pay dirt, uh, the study of microbes. And today, of course, it's all about genomics bioengineering, and all of these new emerging disciplines based on biorevolution. And so if we're looking across the industry of pharmaceutical, it's really jumping or leaping from organic chemistry Mm -hmm. to microbiology Mm -hmm. into genomics as we know it today. And if you're looking at automotive, right, or PC, it has always been staying in the same knowledge discipline. Even automotive, until most recently, is mechanical engineering. So... If an industry getting stuck with an old discipline, sooner or later, latecomer would come in and reach the same height sure. as powerful incumbent. It's only when the underlying knowledge discipline jump from one to the next to the next, then incumbent would probably stand a better chance to fan off low-cost competition. Sure. We've actually interviewed Clayton Christensen on several of his books. We're a big fan of his thinking and whatnot. And obviously him being one of the people most closely associated with disruptive or disruptors or disruptive innovation. How does your book and how do the thoughts you express in the book fit in with or contrast to that type of thinking? Yeah, so disruptive innovation is truly a very powerful framework. And when I was still at Harvard Business School going through my doctoral dissertation, that is the dominant school of thought. And if we take the classic approach in looking at the lens of description, mm-hmm. What Clay has been describing is there are times that an industry open up new opportunity for low-cost competition coming in. At first, they are targeting an underserved market segment, providing good enough product. And over time, these new entrants would build up higher and higher capability, Mm -hmm. eventually disrupt the existing incumbent. So the classic story would be how Sony, using transistor technologies, disrupt RCA based on vacuum tube TV. And what the book Leap is about is really looking on the other side of the equation. That obviously, most established companies find it very, very hard to prosper over a long period of time. But if we're looking at an industry cluster or even pioneering company in certain mundane industry, we actually see there is a pattern of success of how these leading companies can leap across knowledge discipline and achieve Longevity. So I guess in terms of fitting the context is one is looking at how new entrants beating, you know, David beating Goliath. My book is looking at if you're a legacy Fortune 500, if you are getting stuck in an industry seemingly very mundane or even the underlying knowledge getting stagnated, how can you reinvent your businesses so that not only you will survive but prosper over a long period of time? In the book, you identify the twin engines of change that are driving today's business world. So let's let's call you out on it here. What, what are these twin engines and what is their current and future impact? It also going back to the classical framework of disruptive innovation. Because if you're looking in the past, a lot of the academic work has been putting a lot of energy looking at manufacturing sector. Sure. And what we saw these days is, of course, changes is accelerated. If you're looking at, you know, telephone, it takes 75 years to reach 50 million users. Radio is something like 50. 
and then television is only 15. Sure. But of course, today's Google and Facebook take four years, right. and you know Twitter is only yeah. a year. Yeah. And so the pace of change we are observing right now is fundamentally very different than the classical approach based on manufacturing prowess, if you sure. will. And so in the book, the second part is once we extract some lesson learned from historical past, we want to apply to today's world. Mm -hmm. And two emerging thoughts coming out as I talk to different executives. One is, you know, this notion of ubiquitous connectivity mm -hmm. is human to human, is human to machine, machine to machine, really opens up new business model, mm -hmm. new entrants riding in these new ways of connection to innovate better and faster mm -hmm. in the sense that we haven't seen before the second half of 21st century. Sure. The other part, obviously, everybody talk about is the rise of the smart machine, mm -hmm. that the increased computing power is so powerful these days. If I put a bunch of CPU to do parallel calculation mm -hmm. in terms of neural connection mapping into the animal world, it's really close to the human brain. Mm -hmm. And that opens up this opportunity or seismic shift, if you will, for companies to really fundamentally re-examine what are the new area or knowledges that you need to embrace sure. so that you could provide services and product and also augment, quite frankly, the decision-making processes among a lot of managerial activities. How do human beings, leaders, managers, C-suite folks, how do they dance with artificial intelligence? How do they partner with artificial intelligence to succeed? Right. And obviously, artificial intelligence right now is very, very much in the nascent age. And what you see is executive and manager, primarily in terms of the discussion, is still around labor saving. Mm -hmm. So how can we automate more? How can we automate the managerial mundane to get our productivity up per employee? I think the future is really about augmentation mm -hmm. in the sense that once the mundane is automated, mm -hmm. how can we enrich the job description of rank and file sure. to really leverage their creativity so that to solve the next frontier problem? Sure. Let me give you a very concrete example. If we're looking at electricity, right, at the turnaround century when electricity first came along, the factory process engineers couldn't really imagine that you can actually decentralize the work in a factory to make it more like an assembly plant. Sure. They still copy and paste the historical design of a factory like a steam engine. So they sure. cluster all this electric motor in one big room. Sure. It takes 20 years for people to really leverage and unleash the full potential sure. of electricity in manufacturing yeah. setting. Yeah. And so what we're seeing now is quite a similar parallel, right? Yeah. So people want to automate email. People want to automate certain mundane work, Excel spreadsheet, and so on. That is all fine. This is probably the phase one. Sure. But phase two, you could almost imagine how can we use these expert system in some of the bank, we already start to sure. see them, to leverage artificial intelligence to help the less experienced, for example, the financial advisor, to be performing almost like a top-notch financial advisor sure. in the private banking sector. So that is the idea of augmentation. You augment the less experienced workers or the less experienced staff to perform just as good as the outcome as the most world-class expert. <laughs> and that probably would be a lot of development and innovation mm -hmm. in that space. Are you familiar with the term design thinking? Mm-hmm. 
where do you come down on design thinking being a relevant and important, arguably, approach to helping organizations conquer both product and service challenges these days? I think going forward, design thinking is a really interesting approach in terms of a complementary approach mm-hmm. to big data analytics. Sure. Because if you take a step back around design thinking, or some people would call it job to be done, sure. it's really understanding in a holistic way what is that customer journey or what is that user scenarios like, the pain point, yeah. the area for gain in the sense that customer or your target audience couldn't even articulate. Sure. is the classic saying Henry Ford said, you know, yeah. if I ask what customer want, they yeah. want a faster horse, not yeah. a car. Yeah. And design thinking in many ways is to take a step back and really understand what is the job to be done sure. that the target audience is trying to achieve yeah. in their life in the setting that the target audience couldn't probably articulate that. Yeah. Now, that requires human empathy. Yeah. That requires human judgment. That requires unmitigated focus of my target group in reimagining the solution sure. and stitching them together and orchestrate throughout the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that is an area where you know, artificial intelligence cannot automate quite yet sure. because it does take this deep observation of a small sample. Mm -hmm. This is almost like small data, right? You anchor your understanding through a child or a homeless individual or whoever the target audience you try to serve. Mm -hmm. And out of that, you reimagine a new category. Mm -hmm. doesn't negate the importance of big data, Mm -hmm. but it's this combination of power between small data and big data. So you're saying there'll always be a job for creative humans. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if anything, I think the future of managerial job would be even more creative. If we ask managers to take stock of how many emails they mm-hmm. reply every sure. day, most of these are really just forwarding messages without much thoughts into it. Sure. If anything, we are fast turning into human router. Right. Now, this is the paradox, right? In the age of AI, the last thing you want to become is to become a human router. Sure. You want to do something much more creative, require deep work, require a medicated focus, and so on, and doing something rather unique. Mm-hmm. And I think design thinking mm-hmm. as an approach, first, is highly inspirational. Sure Second, is really enter and open up new paths for innovation. Can you tell us about a company or an organization that has utilized design thinking to bring about you know, right. important change. Right. Closer to New York, there is a organization called Community Solution. And its predecessor is uh, Common Ground, still in operation. And the way they try to resolve or alleviate a homelessness problem, what they found out is there is always this group of population who don't want services. This is the paradox, right? In New York, you have homeless shelter, you have faith-based organization, would provide lots of services. Mm -hmm. But there is a group of population who refuse to accept services. So this is a paradox. And in that paradigm back then, organization would try to avoid the service-resistant population Mm -hmm. because it's hard to serve. What happened is, in the book I mentioned, Roseanne Huggerty, at Common Ground at that moment, she decided to embrace a midnight count. She went out and canvassed around the neighborhood of Times Square and discovered what exactly are these needs among this chronic homeless population. Now, that's a vocabulary still lacking back then in the social service sector. And what she discovered is these chronic homeless people, they don't want shelter. Shelter represents something rather dangerous and dingy. 
what they want ultimately is housing. But at the same time, there's almost no way for these chronic homeless population to apply housing because of all the documentation and procedure required. So what they have developed is a class of different type of housing that orchestrate within different service provider to get them through housing first. And what they discover is once you house the chronic population, there's actually almost a ripple effect. Because in many ways, the chronic homeless people, they are the opinion leader among that homeless population. And good word gets spread out throughout. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it creates this ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And so this reminder to us that there are times by zooming in to a particular extreme segment of the population, it allows us to reimagine the service offering and having a much bigger impact to the whole population. Sure. Yeah. Let's say someone's listening to this podcast right now and they want to get started right away. Mm-hmm. What are some watch outs? What are some cautions that you yeah. would put out there for somebody who's considering down this path? The biggest barrier, I think, for organization transformation, because we are talking about LEAP, it really requires a company or an organization to embrace a new knowledge discipline, right? Sure. So these days could be big data analytics, could be design thinking we discussed about. It requires a lot of experimentation. Mm-hmm. So obviously, for the mainstream business, for large organization, it tended to value around predictability. It requires companies to make sure things works out. However, on experimentation side, Obviously, you require managers to be able to try things first. Failure is part of the equation. But then on the other hand, experimentation cannot go on forever. Mm -hmm. At some point, it is the job of the senior management team to recognize, okay, enough experimentation. Here are enough evidence that we need to pull the trigger so that the corporate resource allocation can move from almost like an emergent mode to a much more of a deliberate mode. In the case of Novartis, going back to our original example, at some point, the CEO, Daniel Vanzella, he basically said, you know, this whole idea of coming up with targeted drugs and using genomics is going to be very costly for the clinical trial. And the market risk is so big Mm -hmm. that we are so uncertain. Mm -hmm. But if this way of discovering drugs is going to change how industry is going to behave, Mm -hmm. he basically have said, money doesn't matter. Sure. Let's go ahead. It's a very similar discussion at Procter & Gamble in the wake of the launch of the first synthetic detergent, Mm -hmm. Thai. Again, at a senior level, there were almost this confusion or fear of synthetic detergent Mm -hmm. because they were selling the natural soap, ivory soap, so well. And in the end, it's also the president. If anybody is going to ruin our natural soap business, mm-hmm. it better be us, PNG. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost cliche that we hear now by Steve Jobs, right? If you don't cannibalize yourself, somebody else would. Right. But it's actually not just a Steve Jobs uh, mm-hmm. mantra. Sure. But we have seen across different industry, from pharmaceutical to fast consumer goods, mm-hmm. If they were to thrive over the long run, if they were to leap from one knowledge discipline to the next, at some point, the senior management team need to allow experimentation, but they also need to pull the trigger sure. to fast-track the resource allocation to a new domain. We've been speaking to Howard Yu about his extremely interesting book entitled Leap, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied. Howard, good luck with the book. Thank you very much, Dave.
AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 